Hey. How this are is you? Good. Uh, this is, I feel like the only configuration of hosts we haven't done. You and <laughs> Tom had a very loose episode. <laughs> oh, 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 1 a 1 a.m. After uh, we both like got out for drinks. <laughs> loose episode while I was on vacation a while ago. And then, yeah, Tom and I have done some episodes and obviously the three of us. So now we have... We have our episode together. Um, yeah. Finally. Well, this is great because I think that we are the, like, when the three of us are together, we're obviously the two who are most antagonistic toward one another, <laughs> <laughs> which is also totally unrepresentative of our actual relationship because of the three of us. Like, you and I probably see the world far more uh, similarly yeah, I know. than Normally Tom. Real world, it's us bullying Tom. It's like, Tom, why? Like... <laughs> Why haven't you set up your life to, like, maximize for hallucinogenic experiences? <laughs> but on the show, I guess I end up playing the uh, tech optimist and you're the... Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think I'm a pessimist, actually. Well, I, I just feel like you're not, you're not like, taking the marching orders from what tech's talking about. So it's sort of, you're more, like, independent of it. Yeah, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of like a, a screening function for the podcast. Like, if it's actually made it to my consciousness, it means that the whole world has actually heard of it. And if it hasn't, it just hasn't broken through yet. It's like, oh, are people, you know, trying to arrest someone over this is the justice <laughs> department worried about it that's what and thankfully this week you've been uh thankfully actually <laughs> gonna talk about you know tom had a great uh story on GoPuff that went sort of mini tech viral he he reported that GoPuff workers were ordering groceries on instacart to fill the gaps uh so it's you know tech companies cannibalizing other tech companies but Oh, oh, what I can... loved so much about that story is it was so, it was like the classic startup story, right? And everybody played their role. So startup has to cut some corners and hide the fact that it's not quite ready for prime time. <laughs> startup gets caught by a tech reporter. Startup sort of like luminary startup figures, I guess is how I'd put it, all respond with, oh, this is why the media is so mean. <laughs> <laughs> what, Emil Michael, uh, who is right. Buffett, uh... <laughs> right. Uber. Uh, somebody teased him like, oh, like you're not an expert in, you know, setting tons of money <laughs> on fire for upside down unit economics, which I, di- I didn't like it, but uh, it was, I did chuckle though. I mean, you know, there, there, I mean, there could be a logic to GoPuff using Instacart. I mean, delivering a good customer experience is, is the most important. I mean, it's just, it's been amazing how much money investors are willing to let these companies lose to get sort of the flywheel Right. Going. I mean, there's always the argument, which is you have to get people to use this product as soon as possible. And if the only way to deliver the kind of experience you're promising is to order things from Instacart, then so be it. Like, we'll catch up. And sometimes companies do catch up. Right. And sometimes they don't. Well, do you want to set up? Where but, you've actually oh, what? Oh, did you have another? Oh, you mean the two, the two, my my two, my least favorite and most favorite tech stories of twenty twenty two. Wait, what? least favorite being the hack of the Wall Street Journal. No bueno. Very much, very much caused great anxiety amongst all reporters who've ever written anything about China. Terrible. And then most favorite the um, Bitcoin money laundering couple. 
which includes um, one half of the couple being a self-described comedic rapper. I don't know, Eric, which one did you want to start with? I think uh, we should talk about the more fun one first. (laughs) (laughs) And then the true diehards can listen to your takes on uh, media vulnerability, which is also interesting. (laughs) But uh, That's that's really just for reporters. Let's have ice cream first, you know? (laughs) A real lesson in why you never put a source's name in your Google Doc. (laughs) Right. So what what was so great is... um, when the when the press release hit everyone's inbox, right, we all get this like the Justice Department will be making a big announcement today uh, and it was on crypto. And I think that there's sort of an, a, an it's hard to get excited over uh, a crypto announcement from the Justice Department because they basically are very similar at this point. Something bad happened often on the dark web and the Justice Department was able to use the blockchain to trace the money back to either a person who perpetrated a crime or a person who benefited from it. Because even though, especially Bitcoin, but cryptocurrencies were once marketed as, if you use this, you will evade governments and nobody will find you. The very technology behind the blockchain, which is a a ledger, a permanent ledger, is something that indeed law enforcement has figured out how to use to trace to trace money. Right. The propaganda around Bitcoin has changed 100%. used to be, oh, it's anonymous. And now it's like, oh, well, there's this nice record. So it's harder to commit (laughs) crime. It's it's like, aren't there the same people who were spinning Bitcoin before? It does feel, yeah, an overused word, but a little gaslit on just (laughs) what what is the benefit in terms of secrecy? Is it extreme uh, sort of transparency or, yeah, anyway. Anyway, and so we have seen several Justice Department announcements around cryptocurrencies. I was like, okay, well, this will be this will be fine. But instead, what the Justice Department delivered to us was the the most amazing <laughs> the the most amazing defendants it's found in a while. It's a married couple in Manhattan who were arrested last week um, for allegedly trying to launder billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin that were stolen during this. It's like 3.6 billion in my mind. Or no, it's more than that. That was the recovery. I think they were trying to move more than 4 billion. But when, so this goes back to a big hack in 2016 and the exchange was called Bitfinex. And at the time, hackers broke into this exchange, I believe it's based in Hong Kong, and they stole $72 million in Bitcoin from this exchange. This was 2016. So that was still considered like a lot of money in in the Bitcoin world. But what it really did is it made people nervous about whether or not these exchanges, which generally aren't regulated, nobody really has very few exchanges, especially at that time, were transparent about their security systems, whether or not Bitcoin could kind of take off as a widely traded currency if the exchanges themselves <laughs> were so vulnerable, hackers could just go in and take them. Well, what, um, part of what I love about it is 70 million some gets stolen, but then because it's so hard to move the Bitcoin without getting caught, it like grows to be worth this four like, and a half billion right. dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like nothing better than just like being forced to hold an investment that ends up being super savvy you'd imagine if they could have they would have you know cashed out on the 70 70 million um, right instead they're sitting on like billions of dollars and it's also and- great it's great for the justice department because didn't they had this was like the biggest the recovery ever ex- right exactly they were like this is the biggest asset recovery at three plus billion dollars so the headline again for the justice department 
it was a lot more exciting than if they'd recovered $65 million. You need to get a report. Maybe they were just sitting on this to try and get the maximum Bitcoin price, you know, to get the best <laughs> recovery headline. And they saw the, the markets turn. They're like, shit, we need to move on this. We, we got to do it now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they were charged by criminal complaint rather than indictment, which is a very nerdy thing to even make a distinction about. But when you're charged by criminal complaint, it means that the Justice Department prosecutors did think to themselves, we do not want to, for some reason, we don't want to take the time to put together a presentation for the grand jury and wait for the grand jury to decide. Hmm. We're going to go straight to a judge and we're going to charge these people by criminal complaint. They still have to obtain a formal indictment within, hmm. I forgot the number of days. But oftentimes when you see that, one of the reasons why the justice, I mean, there are several, but one reason the Justice Department might do that is because they fear that the people they want to arrest are flight risks. Now, I don't think anybody has ever said to me that another reason for charging by criminal complaint is fear that the <laughs> cryptocurrency market will continue to plunge. <laughs> but I really like that as a as a. And they'd also, as part of the investigation, had to move the Bitcoin basically into their own wallet, right? So that yes. could have created some sort of desire to to move forward because there were a lot of questions about saw, why it why it moved. So they do they they charge this couple by criminal complaint last Tuesday, and then they arrest them. And what comes out is not just that this is a couple who was trying to launder billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin, basically by creating, you know, lots of different wallets at lots of different exchanges. But one, they are not very good at it. And two, that they as a couple are just this extraordinary <laughs> pair. It's a man named uh, Ilya Lichtenstein and his wife, Heather Morgan. And Heather Morgan and Ilya Lichtenstein, they are trying to, you know, move She's like a rapper and Forbes contributor. But not just a Forbes contributor. She is a Forbes contributor who wrote about how not to what, get scammed. What's her rap <laughs> name? Um, I believe it's RazzleCon. <laughs> We're certainly going to clip that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, we'll have to find a RazzleCon clip. I mean, there's so many things that are really great about her. He did Y Combinator. Yeah, I mean, great, great ad for Y Combinator. <laughs> but you can tell from the criminal complaint, which is really detailed and actually really interesting if you want to understand how the government can do things like trace cryptocurrencies as they move from wallet to wallet. You can tell that, that they've run into problems. The world has changed since 2016. So some of the Bitcoins that are moving to different exchanges, the exchanges now want to comply with international banking regulations, there's a, a know your customer rule. So some of the exchanges ask them to please provide identification hmm. because they want to make sure that the person who opens the account is the person that the person says they are. And this couple is unable to do that. So for example, at that exchange, their funds are completely frozen <laughs> and they can't do anything with them. And also it's a flag to the exchange. And of course, at that point, you can imagine that the exchange would do something like contact law enforcement and say, we have an account and they cannot verify their identity. And so the couple kind of runs into trouble at several turns as they try to launder these Bitcoins. 
And at some point, they start buying things like NFTs with the Bitcoin. They start buying things like gold. And then in one of my favorite moves, they just convert the money to a $500 Walmart gift card. They're just, they're just classic, like lane. They're not, they don't come off as very skilled. I mean, that was your colleagues had a piece that was, I think these, they were envisioned as sort of these amazing, whoever, whoever got this Bitcoin was sort of some sort of super hacker or something. And they seem (laughs) like total bumbler sort of huckster type people. And everybody's trying to make sense of it. Well, that was the thing. Like once the government was able to get, um, you know, process to do things like get into Liechtenstein's um, online accounts, right? His, and I don't mean his online financial accounts, but like basically get into um, like his iCloud or, you know, whatever files of information he had stored. They found that he was like extremely well organized, right? He kept like a file called like passport ideas and he kept a file Mm. called, you know, like, passwords. So he he was not only well organized but he he labeled everything really well so that when the government did start rifling through you know basically his online life um and his his did he have computer one, files my criminal activity you know <laughs> Well I think my favorite my favorite was that when they then went into the couple's home into their apartment they found a bag that was labeled burner phones <laughs> just yeah. filled, filled I, I have one of those you know every, right? doesn't every regular american just have a bag of burner phones and you have to label the bag burner phones so it doesn't you don't confuse it with like your your regular home phones for drug activity only or whatever um, no no accusations of drugs that i'm aware I mean, wasn't there there's so many bizarre aspects to this i mean the wife wanted to go back to the apartment allegedly for her cat. Do you know what I'm talking about here? Yeah. I mean, yeah. So they have, I think there's a photo of her with the cat too, but like, yeah. So again, these are not like, I would not say that they were, they were prepared. I Criminal think, masterminds for, necessarily. For what to do when the government starts investigating you, even though she had written this article for like how not to get scammed in the crypto world but yes so like they wanting to say go back home to your apartment for your cat would be something that i think a a more hardened criminal would advise against but then they let her go back right yeah yeah well this is sort of interesting too like they're fighting they they were released on bail and the bail is like extraordinarily um, high, as you can imagine. And I believe that for Liechtenstein, the bail also includes like his parents' house, you know, and they're, and they're basically arguing that that is um, excessive given the flight risk that they pose. Clearly the government doesn't think so. And the courts don't think so, but I, I think they're trying to make an argument. that They're really not that dangerous and they probably couldn't get away if they wanted to. And while I can understand why the, government be very invested in having um this this extreme bail i i could also see an argument being made by their online existence <laughs> that they're not sophisticated <laughs> but she goes back to get the cat and she like tries to mess with her phone and they think to like lock it or something right right exactly which would be extra extraordinarily foolish i i wouldn't say that it sh- that it necessarily 100 percent shows intent like mens rea that there's right. some guilt there but it's certainly not it's certainly not the act typical of <laughs> <laughs> of an innocent person right. who just wants to see her cat right 
Now, a, a super bizarre point of this is just they weren't charged, or I don't even know if charge is the right word given how this this was laid out, but the hack itself, we don't know who did the actual hack. Exactly. And like the government was very clear and very careful, I think, to not accuse them of hacking into Bitfinex. And they have also made clear through the court papers that this larger investigation is ongoing. And so one thing that they will probably ask um, Razzle Khan and Liechtenstein is how they came into possession of these of the Bitcoins, because the Bitcoins that were stolen from Bitfinex were eventually moved into a wallet under Liechtenstein's control. And so they're going to want to know how that happened and whether or not um, they had outreach, you know, hackers reached out to them or if it was people they already knew, they're going to try to pressure them to give them information. Um, and they're going to use this criminal complaint, which will, you know, eventually become an indictment. They're going to use the criminal charges against them to apply pressure um, to see if they if they have the information uh, that the government wants about the hack and if they'll flip. But it doesn't, is there much of a signal whether the sort of hunch here is that it was another person or that it was probably them, but they just want more evidence? Or is there any sort of signal one way or the other? You know, other? like the government hasn't really signaled one way or another. But I mean, given, I don't know. I mean, like, do you think that the person behind the song, Getting High in a Cemetery, um, who's rapping, I love me some grave grass, is the kind of criminal mastermind that would be able maybe to they're like great you know they're it's like we need to leave a trail of just stupidity <laughs> behind us you know like how hard is, is it this is the 12 dimensional this, this, chess this is that exactly I, like. <laughs> I mean it's you know i was this is so random but i was listening to i don't know a bo burnham clip or something he's talking about you know eighth grade uh the movie he made and yes, he's talking which i could which barely wonderful. get through uh, it yeah. was so hard for me to watch it was too real he's talking about the ideas you know the the middle school or whatever you know puts out the instagram which makes her seem very cool but then he's watching you know the real middle schooler in the mall who seems super ill at ease and only catches the sort of brief second of coolness that she can muster you know you so i mean i don't even need to go down this path to say social media doesn't represent reality and you could create breadcrumbs to make yourself look like a total lunatic i don't know i i i, I think it's more likely that they are sort of weird quirky characters but that doesn't sort of mean that i mean he he one of them couldn't be sort of a savvy uh hacker I'll take that under consideration. I think that one of the things that people were surprised by is that they were involved, that they were accused of this kind of crime because their online personas are so kind of like goofy and hilarious. Right. So it's sort of like, is Razzlecon really a criminal mastermind? That doesn't, that doesn't seem to make sense. What is, um, I mean, the Justice Department's sort of posture towards crypto right now. I mean, you know, Katie Hahn, who has her new fund, you know, com comes out of the Justice Department, obviously, you know, has been out for a while. Was it Andreessen Horowitz? Now it's their biggest bust. I mean, are, is is a sort of huge amount of their resources spent on crypto at the moment? Or what's, what's sort of your read on law enforcement energy around this stuff? Well, I think they take it very seriously, in part because cryptocurrency has for so long has been used as, as the financing arm of all sorts of legal activity, right? So everything from, you know, 
weapons dealing, sanctions evasions, um, human trafficking, uh, drug trafficking, that's been financed by more and more by um, cryptocurrency. So the Justice Department's always going to be very interested in the in the financial flows that support illegal activity. And one thing about a bust like this that's so interesting, aside from the, from this couple, is that it sends yet another signal, and this it's the signal they're trying to send over and over, which is you used to think that this was a way to commit crime because of the anonymity, but because of the permanence of the ledger, we will trace it and we will figure out who you are eventually. It will take us a while, but we will figure out the players in this chain and we will determine who owned what when. In and some ways, they're helping the crypto world. Yes, because that's why someone like Katie Hahn can feel comfortable investing in this world. Basically when she, you know, she's making the investment, she's, she wants to be ahead of where regulation is because once both law enforcement and regulation really have like a firm role that they're playing in the crypto market, it will basically say we have legitimized this market. Money's going to start flowing through it even more. Bigger businesses, fortune 100 companies, global companies can start using this market. And if you were in early, either like, the infrastructure, like the wallets and the exchanges, if you were in early around the products um, that are created solely from um, this world, like NFTs, you could make a lot, a lot of money. But you do need that like layer of legitimacy because it's really hard for something that's only considered to be for criminal use to grow. And it's sort of a funny contradiction, of course, of like the crypto world where they want it to be totally contract based. But then it seems like whenever they're in a pickle, at the at the core, it is a human thing where they want sort of the same as the legal, you know, the same as sort of contracts in the regular world where you're, the intended uh, sort of structure of the agreement matters more than the letter of the agreement. You've just sort of touched on this like very essential tension in, in technology, right? That, you know, the more we want things to be more tech and less human, we keep getting to this problem that the center is always human. <laughs> I, I was I was literally walking around uh, my neighborhood in Brooklyn and there were some there was a real world illustration of a uh, bored ape somewhere. Like someone was drawing NFT art in New York. Uh, so it is bridged the digital uh, real world divide. A couple of things have happened. I mean board ape you know, is sort of one of the big NFT projects with uh, CryptoPunks. Uh, you know, there are, I think, like thousands of these different ape illustrations. People can buy the NFTs. They're worth tons of money. So, but they've been in the news uh, for, for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, BuzzFeed. Katie Nutopoulos, you know, dug up the names of the founders of uh, Bored Ape this month. Uh, just as Andreessen Horowitz was sort of working on an investment that valued the company behind Board Apes at $5 billion. And it was sort of, I mean, that was, you know, the classic sort of crypto versus the media fight. Uh, I don't think everyone in crypto was sort of against them being identified, but there was, you know, there, there's sort of an appeal of anonymity in sort of crypto world. And, and she sort of exposed their names. So there was some debate around that. And then sort of at the same time, there's this interesting element that, you know, Bored Apes allows people 
who own them to actually own the intellectual property of the ape, which means that they can, you know, brand their marijuana company with them. And so then there are all these interesting questions of just how you maintain a brand if everybody who has one can be sort of a shameless opportunist with it and what what that means. And then, yeah. So there's just, I mean, I, I do, we're in this amazing world where I do think, to me, NFTs are just where a ton of the tech energy is, like a lot of interesting. I mean, Lyft's old CFO went to OpenSea, I think OpenSea, you know, which raised a $13 billion valuation. You know, it, it is definitely sort of the hub of some, you know, tech intellectual energy at the moment. I don't know mm-hmm. what, what stands out to you. Well, I think it's interesting just that anonymity was was considered cool. Feels like a, a good direction for tech to go in. I think that with social media, tech was fueling such a push away from privacy and away from doing things because you like to do them. Everything was like an exhibition. And by being anonymous, what was it? Greg Solano and Wiley Aronel. I don't know how to say his last name. By being anonymous, they were basically able to fuel trends, create trends, create cool and do it and leave all of the people who like glommed onto it. Like they just, like they were like, we will be cool and we will create something. And anybody who does want to do that kind of shameless self-promotion and anybody who wants to use the product we've created in that way, they just look way less cool. Like they just look kind of lame, but like it's okay. I like that impulse. Really, uh, I'm definitely on the. I don't know. Real names are so valuable for now. Well, I mean, first of all, we saw there was one crypto project. I'm blanking on the name. Who had it? Turned out one of their founders had founded sort of another crypto project that was like super scammy. So there is an element that it's just helpful. That's that's not the case. I think with board apes. But but there is just this question, you know, if people are buying into something, don't they have a right to sort of understand the background of the creators? And I mean, these if you're creating an NFT project, you're basically selling people that you're going to keep creating a bunch of energy around the project by building more of a community or doing mm-hmm. interesting stuff, even though you're making money basically upfront because these things spike in value. And then you might not have as much incentive to keep it going. So it feels almost more important than anything to know what sort of person you're, you're you know, you're aligning your financial interests with. I guess. But, but I, I guess that's like not a very the, fun answer. Yeah. I mean, I guess some of like that idea of like creating, continuing to create energy around something. I just like the idea that that can be driven in an anonymous way rather than in a, like, I think what we've become used to on Instagram is like the people you follow who are celebrities being like, continue to follow me as I continue to draw you in with like my celebrity life. And then the people who we follow who are our friends also being like, here's the best of my life. I mean, it's just like, so there's something that's become like, and I don't know how to qualify this because I'm not a cultural critic, but it has that same feel of for lack of a better word, chuginess of like <laughs> um, that same vibe of like girl boss. <laughs> you're, you're not <laughs> like, allowed to use chuggy. Chuggy's uh, 
now the Washington Post. Taylor Lorenz's uh, jump ship. You're unfortunately, <laughs> I think, not not allowed to use that word. But you know what I mean? Like when somebody does something, it just makes you like so uncomfortable because it's so uncool. I just have to like look away. You have to pretend it's not happening. You think bored apes are cool? Is that what you're saying? I just want to. Well, I, I, I think that in part by being anonymous and creating buzz around just this idea of something that's absurd. Yeah. Like they basically managed to get people who, who do have influence to, to buy in. Right. You know what I mean? Like the fact that, I mean, what I liked about Katie's story is she, she tells you upfront that they have been successful because these essentially like nonsense NFTs, you have, two celebrities of varying degrees willing to drop a half million dollars just to be a part of it. Right. Not that, I mean, what is it? It's, it's, it's Paris Hilton and I forgot who the other guy is. Wait, didn't Dave Chappelle buy one of my, um, I think so. Oh, it was, um, Jimmy Fallon. Sorry, Jimmy Fallon. I think you're famous too. No, <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like Jimmy Fallon and Paris Hilton between the two of them spent more than half a million dollars because they wanted not just to own an NFT. They wanted to own a bored ape. Yeah, well, not in her story, but Dave Chappelle purchased bored ape. Um, I think for three hundred seventy-one thousand dollars. Yeah, I mean it's amazing. It, <laughs> I just, I just do think at the root, a lot of people participating are trying to make money, and it's like yeah, financial games. Absolutely, and I think that like part of making money, especially when you're trying to move toward the consumer, which is what this is like i don't think that nfts are just like a an enterprise only problem <laughs> you know when you're trying to move toward the consumer you need to do it by making it cool and there was a time like culturally where what was cool was like direct to consumer and like self improvement and basically like anything that looks like a you know a 2015 to 20 probably like 18 or 17 startup around like consumer stuff. Like this is going to help you optimize. It's going to help you maximize. It's going to help you rise and grind all this bullshit. And I think that we've gone to a world that kind of rejects that. And so it's not surprising to me that this more absurdist product is, is more interesting and cooler. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I hope selfishly, just because I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a rising grinder. (laughs) You're like, I, I, I prefer like shameless, stupid uh, financial speculation and sort of signaling online to people who are just like fake, fake grinders. I get, I get, yeah, yeah, like I guess my, the, between the two those two options. Uh, yeah, it's like which, which, which group of people is more likely to produce like the Beastie Boy sabotage video? And that's how I like, and that's how I just judge all, 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 all things now. <laughs> I mean, I do think it's cool that, you know, artists are making a bunch of money all of a sudden because there's this wild speculation. So in terms of a group of people that I'm happy to get some upside, I think there are questions about how much the actual artists in the, the, it does feel like the people who create the projects make more money than the people who illustrate them. Yes. Yes. Which is unfortunate. Yeah. And I, I, I agree with that, but it's just sort of a, I mean, I think we're kind of in a speculative time right now um financially and so i don't think that like getting rid of nfts or refusing to like take their existence seriously in any way shape or form will will stop speculation or will will change the fact that right now 
a lot of capital is in the hands of very few people and that those people are not super inclined to do anything that would create like mass productivity and prosperity for people. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, our, my favorite topic, Andreessen Horowitz. I mean, that is sort of the contradiction of, you know, Andreessen is big on sort of it's time to build and sort of investing in, you know, private industry somehow building big infrastructure again. I mean, well, I mean, that's often represented by like the Anderols and SpaceX's of the world. But then at the same time, it's the firm that's engaged in just sort of NFT games. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, they're, they're big enough now that they have sort of different, they contain multitudes. Uh, yeah. But. And also, like, when you think about that, that problem, in some ways, what's happening in the tech world, the tech world is kind of, especially like the startup world, they're, they're beneficiaries of this problem in the American economy, but they're not based because of what their interests are. They're not like really well um, suited to solve it. They're just sort of like playing at the margins. I mean, I think it was the, I don't remember if it was the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post that had this very good story recently, just showing how the employees of one of the country's largest grocery chains, they have all, you know, reported that they're homeless or that they face eviction, that they themselves do not have enough money to buy the groceries that they sell. That's the bigger problem, that we have a world in which a large successful company whose executives can make millions of dollars lives and dies and ensuring that employees cannot pay rent or live with any sort of middle-class quality of life and in fact face homelessness and food insecurity. Like that's sort of the bigger problem with the American economy. And that's and that sort of like acceptance that that's okay because either it helps shareholders or for some absurd reason. But your point that, is these that NFT creates, buyers. That, that creates the ecosystem in which, you know, capital has now accrued to a tiny number of people. And some of those people like Silicon Valley people, they're just not equipped, interested in, or in any way like positioned to solve or tackle that problem. So instead, they're just like playing around the margins with things like NFTs. So, so your point is, if you're nihilistically going to waste your money on stupid consumer stuff, might as well be basically an accelerationist about it and sure. do it on the most like extremely <laughs> obviously pointless yes. thing yes. so that then it becomes very obvious <laughs> to society that you believe in nothing. And yes. so then Katie Benner will say, that's good <laughs> because at least if you're like an empty hollow husk, it will be very obvious to everyone. Yeah, embrace <laughs> it. Embrace <laughs> your husband. Well. It's like, cool. you know, like yeah. make it a dumb looking ape. So you yes. and like, and the, at least better that than, you know, I mean, it is funny, you know, and as Miami, yeah, just everybody's in a fucking like Ferrari or it is a crazy, I mean, to some degree, tech is just embracing conspicuous consumption in a way that they weren't really supposed to in San Francisco. Right, right. That's so funny. That's true. And there's like a way in which I feel like, you know, if we were to compare this decade to the post-Spanish flu decade you know, the, our last pandemic, you know, tech is kind of like the Gatsby part of, of that era. A lot of attention's paid to it because there's a lot of money there and it looks like a lot of fun. But even in the roaring 20s, we pay an outsized amount of attention to that part 
of what was going on in America. And we kind of don't pay as much attention to this like really hard, horrible reality that for the mass of the country that was not like the F. Scott Fitzgerald um, portion of America. Let's see, we had the resurgence of the KKK. We had like intense hatred of immigrants. We had people incredibly poor, poverty stricken, like zero trust in the government and all sorts of other extremely troubling phenomenon. When we think about what that post pandemic era was like, we think about like the roaring 20s. And I feel like that's kind of the role tech is playing. They're, they're, we're thinking about like their, you know, roaring 20s style behavior, their absurdity, the fun of it all, the ridiculous of it all. You know, Paris Hilton and some talk show host whose name I will never remember. I'm so sorry. Jimmy Fallon. You know, thank you, Jimmy Fallon, talking about how I'm a Conan O'Brien person. Okay. Um, Jimmy Fallon talking about the half a million dollars they just randomly spent on this picture of an ape. <laughs> like that's what we kind of see. And that's the part that we pay a lot of attention to because it's the glittery part. And it's it's sort of like a balm over just the really troubling reality that exists for a lot of people. Wow. And that's, (laughs) and that concludes my time. You make my heart feel (laughs) too hardened. I don't know. It is. Yeah. I don't know. At least the tech people are trying to do interesting things. I understand that they're fortunate enough, um, to be able to waste their money on right. and cartoon I'm like, listen, like everyone has a role to play. Americans like move less than I believe ever before. Like there, there is a certain like there, there's. Uh, I feel like almost like they're playing their part, right? They're not as much as you. This is you will not believe me when I say this. I'm actually not like conferring a value judgment on this because I find it hard to even come up with an idea of how any of these players could behave differently. And there are going to be people who are like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like they could they could give up all their money and they could vote for Bernie Sanders and they could go work in a homeless shelter. And I'm like, okay, yes, they could. <laughs> and yet they will not. And so like I I given like the the structures in which they But San Francisco the world, spends a ton of money on homelessness. Like is I'm not, I'm not is the challenge I'm talking about the challenge this, like, like I'm talking a about this sort of, of like class money? of people with the with like money to like burn on eight pictures. Right. Yeah, I'm I'm not talking about San Francisco. And to your point like they're in Florida or they're in Texas having just a great time. It's great. Yeah, I'm I'm an ideological inflection point. I don't I don't I don't. Oh, know. what do you mean? <laughs> I I just I. It feels like we've passed an insane. Uh, we've you know the Biden administration passed a bunch of safety net measures. Um, <laughs> but when you say you're at an ideological inflection point, from from what to what? Just you personally. Just to from yeah, the most important thing was social programs to the most important thing being (laughs) here's my problem i i feel like this is and i i might cut all this but like on the one hand i'm like a you know diehard democrat right i do think like fascism is the most important thing i think republicans are like anti-intellectual and i have a big problem with sort of the david Sachs, peter teals of the world who i read as basically being willing to play with fire in order to get tax cuts they're basically willing to like say anything, do anything to keep 
government small. So it's like this crazy Republican Party that is just like, you know, a game. It's basically we'll have a culture war so that the elites can cut taxes. So the Republican Party to me is the most it's disgusting on every level. It's disingenuous. So so I there, there's nothing is to say that I'm having an ideological like it doesn't mean anything because I'm sort of like you know, as Democrat as you could be. But at the same time, you know, you go to Europe and it just does. I don't want like America to become some like chillax, like welfare state. Yeah. Just sort of everybody gets like, I like the idea that America, yeah, you got to hustle. And it feels like the idea that there's a ton of money around the, the United States and it like feels like some people aren't like seizing it feels like culturally disappointing. I don't think the Republicans have any sort of answer to that. But I do think sort of what the Democrats themselves like to talk about, which is just like, you know, is is sort of lame. So I just I just don't want the government to be like at the center of my like mind. Like I feel like we just spend, I mean, it doesn't feel like much is going to get done. I'm going to vote for Democrats. I'm against fascism, but it's just, I feel like there's a lot of complaining without a clear like picture of of what 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 we want. I don't know. Does that make sense? Or? It does make sense. I mean, like first of all, I need to say I don't. I like obviously I don't necessarily see politics in the same way that you do, which is fine, or see even the parties necessarily in that way. But I do agree that this idea of focusing on politics is possibly not the best way to spend one's energies right now. And I wonder if part of the reason you feel the way you do about um, politics still being all so all consuming is because you spend a lot of time on Twitter. <laughs> because if right. you are not on Twitter, <laughs> right? if you are not reading these things, like the massive, I mean, it's not like I'm in touch with, you know, 300 million people. Right. But I think that if you're not on Twitter, it is very easy to have conversations with people about their lives and the problems they're having or the, or the, not the problems they're having, just the things they're doing that where politics is like literally never mentioned at all. Right. And I think that that is a fine way to live. But my job obviously is a mix of surfing the conversation to the extent it exists. And then when I'm at my best, you know, doing reporting and getting outside of the conversation, but there's an inherent, you know, I guess I could live in a world of only sort of, off the sort of narrative stories, but it feels hard to sort of unplug from what sort of is being chattered. About. And it is hard. And I think that one thing that let me phrase this in a way that won't have where people won't come for me. But I do think that one thing that Trump showed the world was that Twitter is extremely useful as a for politicians who want to bypass who want to bypass having to get messages out through more traditional means like you know, having a reporter write about it or doing an interview with 60 Minutes that you can just have a direct relationship with your supporters via Twitter. And so I think that Twitter became a much more politics-driven platform than it was before 2016. Like before 2016, I can remember that Twitter, like obviously there were people talking about politics in 2014 and 2012. You know, the 2012 election was not something that was a shoe-in for Obama. I think that there was a lot of political chatter happening on the platform. But I remember on Twitter, I could also very happily just jump into groups of people who are just talking about like bands or who were talking about 
like life hacks or and so I think that Twitter became political. Well, some of it is just how these social media companies change. I looked I looked on the internet archive. We would tweet about stuff like, I'm going to this show, or, you know. Yeah. It, I don't know. Or be it's like, oh my gosh, weird. should I see this movie? Like, has it wasn't anybody part seen of this like movie? a conversation. It wasn't no. like, I feel it was like random. now on Twitter, it's sort of like, why are you talking about it? You know, the, there are a couple big themes and we're sort of all sort of amassing. I started, I started, I, I can't decide how, I mean, I'm not really tweeting on it. I was just sick of not being able to read, uh, Mark Andreessen's tweets. So I created an account that that I named. The name of it is not here to contradict Mark Andreessen. <laughs> <laughs> and the account is uh, P. Marka fanboy. <laughs> and it is <laughs> and it is interesting just to like inhabit sort of the you know I follow Bology and all those people that block me. And it, I mean they're very. It's they're still involved in like their own sort of conversation, you know. It it is not great. It, it's a different sort of topic, but it it feels like it's sort of in the same spirit. Yeah, I can remember like this was ages ago, and I think it was even before I covered the tech industry. Being involved in a conversation about Japanese debt with with Mark Andreessen of all people, and then a couple of other folks because I had just. I think I was still at Fortune. Obviously, I was always interested in debt markets. That's so nerdy and ridiculous, but whatever. I forgot which short seller. It was not Ackman, but one of the big shorts had put out, you know, sort of an interesting, he was in Texas. I'm going to remember his name someday. Just an interesting um, thesis on like Japanese debt. And I thought that was like a very fun, interesting random conversation on Twitter that I can't like really imagine happening today. So it was just like a niche conversation that we all in that moment thought was interesting. And then it went away. And that's what Twitter used to be. Did you follow the whole word cell shape rotator thing? No, I saw. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, everybody else did their podcast on this last week, but Mark Andreessen has been really pushing it, but word cell, you know, it's somewhat a liberal arts sort of engineer divide, but it's meant to be a little bit savvier than that. Basically, the idea is, you know, on an IQ test, the biggest, one of the most noticeable gaps in smart people is that there will be people who are really good with sort of word problem types and others who are good at literally like rotating shapes. It's like, if you have this shape, which of these shapes is it? And so it's become sort of like, you know, the Mark Andreessen's of the world's are shape rotators and we are word cells. And Market had a funny tweet where it was, you know, of course the word cells win at word arguments. They're spending, you know, all their time word selling. And we're out here rotating shapes. And, you know, so, but it, it's become sort of a, you know, and then, you know, they have obviously come up with like word chat. You know, it, it's sort of the 4chanization of thinking about culture. I mean, I'm sad that word cell sounds so much like incel. Well, that's the point. That's the, (laughs) it is. Well, the point is that we're, we're sad that we are cultural. We, we're, we want to be elites. We're smart at words, but we are in an era where shape rotators run some of the biggest companies. And so Um, we, in a, in any other sort of era. Shape rotators always run the biggest companies. Well, no, I think the argument is that, you know, politics used to be sort of the center of 
because a lot of a lot of success, you know, was navigating hierarchies or, you know, you'd be the best at some like big organization that lasted. I Which mean, one I could argue you do successfully because of shape. But I want to know that on those tests, I always score higher on shape rotation. It's interesting. <laughs> so maybe I'm mis- maybe I'm in the wrong job. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I have no idea. So I'm not I, a little, I, I'm no incel, word cell freak, <laughs> Eric. <laughs> I'm a robot. <laughs> Tying this word cell thing together, my P Marka Twitter account, my political uncertainty. I do feel like, I just don't think that sort of dark web Twitter or whatever we're calling it, intellectual dark web. I don't feel like they're very honest about their core views, like part the 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 aesthetic style of being sort of, it's I mean the, the fact that they're all about these memes and that it's very jokey and that it's often sort of positioned in like sort of yeah you don't know if they're being sarcastic or not like there is this huge cultural gap in how they communicate on Twitter from like a Matt Iglesias where it's like here's my argument for what I think we should do. And I do find it very frustrating that they. How can, old are the people you're referring to? Just I mean, there's a whole range. I mean, because like that is such a '90s way to be. I mean, just sorry, like as I, and it's a way that I like. Well, what is, it's a way oh, that I like being disingenuous all the time. What's the whole argument? It's like everyone's the Janine Garofalo character. You, the like, biggest, the biggest concern was that you'd be a poser, right? That's the yeah, whole, totally. Which, which has no intellectual like. And coherence. one way to not be a poser is to not be genuine whatsoever about anything, right? Which I hate. You know, I want to like. What is the what is right, your actual you're a millennial. Like, argument? Like, what is? I feel like they're playing games. You know, it's. They don't have to commit, yeah. even though they're the ones who argue that you should be a productive actor in society, you know, you should actually do things when it actually comes to sort of the intellectual arguments they're putting out that they, they want to do it in a way that's just like fun or like that or just, like gives them the wiggle room to be like, whatever, if right, cornered, which right. is like literally how I led my entire teenage life in 1994, right. <laughs> right. which is, so it's familiar, it's a familiar way of being. <laughs> I mean, I not, do. Not one that I necessarily criticize. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, obviously my, you know, morphing sort of ideology has to do with, you know, partially, you know, I'm a small business owner now. But I think also besides that, it is that, you know, as a reporter, as a reporter, you can write a story that's very critical of something. And you might actually, in your heart of hearts, agree with the actual people that you're sort of, criti- that the story is sort of putting a harsh microscope under, but you just believe in the activity of sort of looking into something and exposing it. Uh, But I do think now that I have more of a reported column, you know, there's more, I, I feel more pressure to just sort of, I don't, I can't sort of escape the like core thesis statement that would say like, what do you actually sort of believe? Right. I I see what you're saying. When the justice department arrests two people, whether or not you think what they did was bad or even that big a deal, you're still writing that they right. were arrested. Right, and then you write profiles which, because that's which what one inf- does. You which know. infers that, like, they did do something wrong because right. the reason you're writing is because they were arrested. Even right. if in your heart of hearts you're like, whatever, I don't care. Right. Or I don't even think it's <laughs> that bad. That money was going to get wasted by other people. Like, uh, <laughs> glad these fun people who are willing to risk it all are having a little Right, blast. I mean, like, <laughs> I'm glad RazzleCon... <laughs> 
It's she like, deserved that money more than whoever, you know, earnest early crypto investors, <laughs> you know. She's a rapper. <laughs> I mean, I I'm that's not how I feel about the crypto couple, but I can I can totally see that with with other things like the, there are white collar crimes or there are, you know, issues that people might not care about as reporters, but yet they have to say that the Justice Department is blocking some M&A deal, which, you know, has some sort of like inference of it being gone in the eyes of the Justice Department, but the reporter might actually not actually care about whether or not this will impact um, antitrust laws. But you you were very excited to talk about the Wall Street Journal <laughs> because I think clearly from our messages with each other, you're like, this is very important and society this and the world, me. even journalists don't seem to care about it. So no, it was very personal. You use, was, your, use the platform to tell people why this matters to the world. It was very straightforward. The Wall Street Journal writes a story saying we've been hacked. All of the reporters whose Google Docs been marched through by the PRC <laughs> had to sit in a meeting and kind of sit with the fact that the Chinese government had read all of their Google documents that seemed to have any pertinent information around China. And then there was just the bigger question of how did this happen? You know, Google came out and said it was not because our Google suite was broken into. And that was very, very important hmm. because so many companies, including the New York Times, use Google f- to power our mail. The our newcomer Gmail. newsroom is powered by <laughs> the newcomer equally, newsroom is powered by Google. Important. And that means that our documents are often stored using the Google Office Suite. So to have an incident where all of these reporters were hacked was for, I will just say, for some reporters at the New York Times, very concerning. <laughs> right. So it was China trying to, it seemed like it was retribution for um, the art, the disputes between the Wall Street Journal and, and China before they kicked all of the reporters out of the country. But um, you know, you can imagine if you were reporting on, say, a, ch- a story on Chinese corporate espionage and you had interviewed, you know, government officials, whether they were at the Justice Department or the CIA, whether you had interviewed um, former officials who now do business uh, with companies and advise them or work at places like, you know, some of the big aerospace corporations, you can sort of see how the Chinese government would be interested to know what those folks were telling the media and who was saying it. So you just, again, you never want to put a name in that Google Doc. Ever. Right. <laughs> like never, ever, ever. But yes, yeah, so it caused just like a real, it was just a really good reminder, I think, to be incredibly careful uh, just in case there is a disaster hack. Oh yeah, like you and Tom and I were texting. You guys were getting ready to do an episode, and I was like, "I have to report right now," and also scrub all of my accounts and make sure everything's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was. I think. I think it's just me and like seven other reporters who cared about that story. Yeah, but we cared a lot. Understandably, it's just yeah. Everything gets hacked. Someday it'll be me and I'll be sad about it. But it's hard to hard to get upset in the abstract because it feels I mean, I get spam. I I, I think I'm getting fished all the time. I get very strange emails and calls and oh, I feel yes. like life is just ignoring weird inbound, you know, don't click on anything. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever 
bought Norton security suite ever in my life, but I get a lot of emails saying (laughs) (laughs) that my Norton security suite is no longer working and I just need to click on this link to fire back up. Also, I now get emails every day that say um, uh, they're from Amazon and that my account has been frozen and that my Amazon Prime packages will not be delivered. And I can see how a person in a moment of panic would read that and be like, oh no. Well, it's very useful that I have a Macon, Georgia phone number, but I live and do, I talk to basically no one from Macon, Georgia because all the scammers think calling me from Georgia is the savvy move. But I'm like, oh, nobody calls me from Georgia unless they're in my contacts already. So I just ignore, you know, all all calls from my home state, which ends up being a great screening mechanism. There you go. Everybody go get a Macon, Georgia <laughs> yeah, phone exactly. number. All right. Good night, T. Well, it this was lovely great. to speak with you. Yeah. Hopefully Tom will be feeling better. I think Tom will be curious to see how we do. Um, I think he'll be he'll be pleased that we get along. Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.